Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Speak Up. I'm Ruth Townsend. I've been a speechy for around 24 years and I've been working at Austin Health in Melbourne in Victoria for the last 19 years in subacute care. I'm nowadays in a stream leader role. So a little bit of background about me. As a younger speechy, I pursued an interest in animal assisted therapy and was awarded a Windermere Fellowship back in 2006 to benchmark overseas and establish a research project exploring the use of animal assisted therapy with adolescents with acquired brain injury. And we subsequently did that project and set up a decade long program, animal assisted therapy program at um, Royal Talbot at our rehab hospital. And Obviously, my, my role has changed. I've become interested in leadership and education, and I'm lucky to share my job uh, with a job share partner, and together we run the education pillar within our organisation, uh, within our discipline. My other area of passion, and this is really what brings me here today, is working with our patients and colleagues in the hospital system to better support people with communication disability during their hospital admissions. I've trained at the Aphasia Institute in Canada, provided supported communication training to La Trobe University students. And more recently, my colleague Catherine McKinley at St Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne and I were awarded a grant from the Department of Health to work with um, people with communication disability to design and build a communication skills training program for healthcare professionals working in our hospitals. It's called Making Healthcare Conversations Better, Working with Our Patients with Communication Difficulties. So that's a bit about me. I'm really excited to be hosting today's podcast as not only is this an area of passion for me, but I'm so curious to learn more about the how. So our guest today is Roz Shand. Hi, Roz. Hi. Roz is a speech pathologist who's worked across Alfred Health and Monash Health in Victoria for the last seven years, working in acute care, subacute neuro rehab, and now more recently, community rehab and community health. That's a lot in a short time. <laughs> Roz currently works in home-based community rehab and facilitates the Cheltenham Aphasia Group at Monash Health. She does some private work with NDIS as well. Roz's passion for working in adult communication started as a student when she volunteered with the Aphasia Lab at La Trobe University 
known better now as the CRE, obviously headed up by Professor Miranda Rose, and uh, also a placement at the Aphasia Institute in Toronto, Canada, where the focus on a life participation approach was key and has informed her clinical practice since. You may have seen Ros present at our National Speech Pathology Australia conference this year, or more recently at the Australasian Aphasia Symposium in Melbourne. Welcome, Ros. Thank you very much, Ruth. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Ah, wonderful. All right, well, I feel like we've got so much to talk about, so I'm going to get stuck straight in. Absolutely. And um, let's see where it takes us. So before we talk about the how, I'm so keen to know more about what your starting point was and what happened that led you and your team at Monash to pursue this research. Absolutely. So um, I suppose there's there's two parts to, the, to it. Um, you know, getting into clinical research in the first place um, and then also that the experience working as a clinician that led to this topic. So I suppose um, starting clinical research from that point of view, I was so grateful to have connections with La Trobe University and and the researchers there um, who are now my supervisors, um, Dr. Robin O'Halloran, Abby Foster, Caroline Baker, um, you know, and to, to have that connection and to have spoken to them in the past about aphasia and aphasia research. And so wanting to do research in the clinical setting that set us up to apply for a Monash Health Emerging Researcher Fellowship, which is a grant to support exactly that, emerging researchers to um, dip their toe in the research world. And it's a grant for one year um, and it's a funded grant of $15,000. So that was how, in a practical sense, we started the project and I was awarded one of those fellowships, which meant we could get started. In terms of patient experiences that, that fueled wanting to do this work, um, having, again, been so fortunate to finish my university experience at the Aphasia Institute and experience that model of care, which in some ways we don't have here in our healthcare system, that sort of final step of people attending for 20 years plus um, this service that is geared towards life participation with aphasia, supporting communication, all of those services, and then coming back to the hospital system and feeling so motivated to apply the learnings from the Aphasia Institute to working in a hospital um, whilst also being a new graduate trying to get my head around things and realising how incredibly difficult <laughs> um, that was and that was going to be. And so it it stayed as this sort of niggling um, desire in the back of my head. And then I suppose working in, in hospitals, you see communication breakdown, you see ward rounds where um, communication is unsuccessful for people and how frustrating that can be. And I really wanted to see how can we change that? How can we improve it? Um, and then this is where... You know, I wanted to share a story that was from when I was working on the neurorehabilitation ward um, that specifically fueled this topic. So a lot of the time I would do supportive communication with my patients. 
that I was working with as part of their therapy um, to help them with their activity and their participation. And I would try to do that in conjunction with impairment-based therapy. So working on um, the neurorehabilitation ward at Monash Health, and I was working on a fantastic neurorehab ward at the Kingston Centre where the nurses were incredibly motivated and are incredibly motivated to include people in their care, to use supports, to take on speech pathology strategies. And we had a woman in her late 40s, very large stroke, um, severe apraxia, anaphasia, um, and of course she was so frustrated and I'd already completed my session with her that day, you know, working very specifically on, on motor speech and apraxia and, and targeted therapy. Um, and I was walking off the ward and the nurse in charge and the intern came running over and said, we need speech pathology. We need speech pathology. There's her communications broken down. We've used the supports you've told us about. We can't figure out what the message is you know, she's escalating, she's so frustrated, it's going to be a, a code grey, you know, where security needs to be called, she's really agitated, we're trying to get this bladder ultrasound, please come and fix, you know, fig- figure out what she's trying to tell us. And so we go in and end up doing this joint session with the nurse in charge, the intern, the physio's there, I'm there, and of course the patient who's really upset. And by this time she'd been on the ward for months, everyone knew her well, they knew her communication style, And I think the first thing that was really apparent that was using my full suite of experience and supportive communication skills, I also couldn't figure out exactly what it was she was wanting to tell us. And so it was bringing that whole team in and saying, guys, this is hard. We've all got to help to work this out and to help her to express what she would like. Um, And it took about 45 minutes of everyone working together. And eventually we said, well, hold on. Why do, you know, why are you're trying to do a bladder ultrasound. What's the purpose of this assessment? And they said, well, she was up 14 times overnight to go to the bathroom. I went, 14 times? That's that's really strange. What? And all of a sudden, you know, she was able to communicate with us through her facial expression. That was it. That was, that was the issue. And we went, did you really need to go to the bathroom 14 times? She said, no. Um, and then we remembered that the day before, uh, at about 4pm, we'd had a conversation finishing up with the social worker and myself, the speech pathologist, talking about NDIS and her discharge home. And she'd been really stressed and really overwhelmed, understandably. And it turned out she hadn't been able to sleep that night because her mood and she was feeling stressed. But every time the nurses came in, they didn't know why she was awake. She wasn't able to tell them what was going on. And they didn't want her to be uncomfortable, so they took her to the bathroom. So she hadn't needed to go to the bathroom at all. She'd been feeling really upset but hadn't been able to express that. And so she was trying to say there is no need for a bladder ultrasound because that's not actually what was going on. Um, And it was just uh, devastating to, to sort of figure it out. And, you know, she burst into tears and we actually had another gentleman with apraxia and aphasia who'd actually asked to come and observe because the ward was wonderful and he was passing by and she'd said yes. And he actually started crying as well because he observed this supported communication interaction from the other side. And he wheeled himself in next to her and we thought, what's going on? And he actually held her hand and they both just burst into tears and cried. And it it was so powerful and so moving and it's just such a a representative example of why as speech pathologists we need to be working on 
helping people to participate in their care and that practical communication, but also how hard it is. It's so hard to support communication. Um, and the whole team, you know, can can work at it and it's important for mood and it's important for effective care. Um, so, yeah, that's that's sort of one of the driving passions and the stories that, that um, sits with me. What an incredible story. And, I mean, that's almost brought tears to my eyes hearing that. And I think... I actually think that what is so powerful in this space is is hearing and sharing those stories because, you know, as soon as you imagine that being your mother or, or your sister or, or your relative in that situation, you see the full impact of what people with communication disability face, you know, in the hospital setting and how disempowering and frustrating it must be for them. And I think sometimes having a story like that in the back of your mind is such a powerful driver for change. And I know from our experience of designing and rolling out the training that often with the nurses and healthcare professionals that we were training, that that all of them had a story. You know, Mm. all of them had an encounter that had really stuck with them you know, for all the wrong reasons often, Mm. but because it's so powerful when you can relate it to a person. Um, I myself have an experience from which, I, you know, I share often in the training that I've done um, from my younger years as a speechy working with a patient with Gillian Barre who was had no movement and, and no communication system in place and um, and I had very little success, as did the whole team that were working with her at setting up a system. And years later, and this patient had gone on to a different healthcare network and, and did have some success and some recovery. And years later, I learnt that uh, she, the patient had um, been lying in a hospital bed and every night when the lights went out, a spider had crawled down from the perforated ceiling and um, spun a web down and hung above her face. And then in the morning when the lights, hospital lights came on, it retreated back into the ceiling and this happened night after night after night and she was totally unable to Mm. communicate that A, she was um, frightened of spiders and uh, B, that obviously this was even happening to her. So... Mm. I have utter horror when I recall that, both the arachnophobe in me, um, but also just a deep distress that this person had no way of communicating their most basic of needs. Yeah, it's so that's so horrifying and and it's exactly that. And it it sort of reinforces this um, idea of this sort of learned helplessness of not being able to get your needs met and you know you can see um, why there's such significant research about um, the impact of mood and the importance of addressing mood because uh, it's sort of reinforcing this idea that that you can't and you can't and so um, you know it 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 um, makes me feel even more strongly that we need to create that supportive environment so that people learn that actually here you can 
express yourself or you can get your needs met or, you know, communication will break down. But people, it's important that you, uh, people care that you, you know, you need to express yourself and and you should keep trying even though it's so, so hard. I guess so that I'm really keen to know Mm. and I assume um, that this would have been part of your research is really an appraisal of what does the current research tell us about the patient experience in hospital for people with communication disability? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's pretty overwhelming research and you know, particularly over the last 20, 25 years, um, we know patients with communication difficulty um, don't get enough to eat and drink, um, are unsure when to seek help on discharge, aren't getting effective, uh, aren't receiving effective pain management, sometimes can't get help when required. Um, There was a wonderful article more recently. It's this feeling of being in a foreign country, um, having higher odds of more hospital stays and emergency department visits. Uh, higher odds of preventable adverse events so it's really this patient safety is impacted by poor communication but also um, patient experience and well-being Um, and and I believe that there's also um, more recent research that you know that's impacting people's willingness to present to hospital or their um, sense of safety in attending hospital when they have communication difficulty. So it's pretty pretty damning isn't it Mm -hmm. can you um I guess on a slightly different note I'm really keen to know um from your example before you know you spoke about the nurses and the whole team being involved Uh, uh, your research struck me as being really collaborative with um with nursing staff in particular and I'm I'm just keen yeah to hear a bit more about that yeah, so I suppose, um, you know, the idea of uh, collaborating with nurses, um, my supervisor, uh, Robin O'Halloran, um, had actually, you know, reflected on with her own research, the expertise that nurses have in communicating with patients. Um, and we spoke about how this is sort of this unexplored area of the research of the nurse's perspective. And if we look at the hospital setting, that 24-hour point of contact for patients and their communication is the nurses and they're implementing recommendations from every discipline. So I think when they're the ones on the ground and they do develop such a natural expertise and skill in, in how to communicate with patients, we really wanted to know what their perspective is. And I think sometimes it can be... Um, in the, the busyness of uh, the general hospital environment, you know, you can suggest stra- uh, supports that people can use and sometimes you can feel frustrated and think, oh, you know, just give them more time. Um, but it's not that easy. And what I found, you know, working on this fantastic ward that I was on um, at the Kingston Centre at Monash, the nurses were so motivated. I've never seen such motivated, you know, and caring nurses. And they would come out of the room crying and saying, I'm trying so hard. I really want to help, you know, this man with aphasia to communicate, but I'm, I'm not understanding and I think I'm making it worse and I don't know how to help. Um, so taking away any shame, it's, it's not their fault. It's not that they're not trying hard enough. We need to partner with them and say, okay, well, what can we do? What will help you guys? How can we better address the needs of nurses um, to help them to communicate with patients? 
Oh, that is so powerful. Mm. And I, I totally had the same experience, you know, with our own training project that we had nurses of, you know, just incredibly high levels of competence and experience who were in tears and I think held a lot of shame about their previous experiences with people with communication disability. You know, there was not one of them, you know, didn't have an example of a time when they felt they had failed their patient. They had avoided the communication. They had ignored the communication breakdown. Mm. Um, But as you say, purely because they hadn't necessarily had the tools or the yeah. experience, not not because they hadn't, you know, they weren't present or they weren't wanting to actually help and care. Exactly. I actually um, thought I will briefly touch on as well the research evidence about um, the impact on uh, nurses' wellbeing from ineffective communication because this was something that stood out um, from our research that really struck me. I think I I knew that that was the case, um, but to see it reflected in the research. And there's um, one particular uh, line from a research article that was saying nurses feel exhausted by their ability to sense the patient's vulnerability coupled with their inability to communicate effectively about the patient's experiences. And I just think that's such a, you know, and I went back to the article to go, is it is it really exhausted, the word that's used? And it is, and I think that's such a powerful statement. Um, and as you said, a lot of, you know, and more recent research um, in the last few years has actually shown exactly what you said, that uh, nurses and healthcare staff can end up avoiding people with communication difficulty if they're not given adequate training or supports, um, which can really exacerbate the situation. So, nurses' well-being and staff well-being is really greatly impacted as well, which is so important to consider, particularly after COVID-19 and, and the pandemic and, you know, these huge levels of staff burnout, that poor communication is making that much more challenging. Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And yeah. probably like with most things in life as well, you know, I guess we always err towards the things that we know how to do effectively And when we're presented with something that we don't necessarily have the tools or the capacity or the knowledge to deal with, you know, that will be the thing we shelve and procrastinate on. So Exactly. And there should, as you said, there should be no shame about that. It's a it's a natural process and it's not there is no ill will in any um, healthcare providers. They're all wanting to do their best, but it's incredibly challenging. But the quick wins. Yes. And the biggest challenges. Well, we've kind of elaborated already on some of the challenges, but, yeah, I guess. Yeah. I suppose um, the quick wins of collaborating with nurses, even coming into a project where our base assumption was the nurses hold this expertise from their clinical experience and we want to acknowledge that and respect that um, and hear more meant that already we were having this really productive conversation where the nurses would share their perspective and their insights about communication and communicating with patients with communication difficulty. And that was a huge quick win. I found anecdotally on the ward, nurses were coming up to me more with ideas, with insights. I I felt like they were more motivated, you know. Um, So I think... 
the collaboration is is ripe to happen. The nurses want to talk about this. Um, so that was a really quick win. In terms of the biggest challenge, um, as part of our project, we were asking the nurses, and I, I can come to this more later, but we were asking them to complete a screening questionnaire, which was an additional part of their work. So when nurses are already incredibly busy and asking them to do something else, it was really challenging. And implementing that change and adding to their workload, particularly given it it was a research project. So then um, the results and the outcomes from the nurses completing that extra work with the screening questionnaire, I wasn't necessarily a member of the ward team anymore. I was separate to the ward. So I wasn't immediately in those team meetings in the morning, feeding back or giving them supports or really demonstrating that um, there was a, a, a value to be gained by them doing that work for me. So um, I do remember some of the nurses that I, I had a pre-existing relationship with because I, I had been working clinically on the ward with them and they said, we are doing this for you, but this is a real challenge. <laughs> this is a real challenge um, and we, we won't necessarily be able to do it for much longer. So... Yeah, it's it's a huge challenge to change uh, to change people's practice when they're already very busy. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, research is a long game, isn't it? And exactly, they're they're stuck in the trenches. You know, they're they they need the quick win. And yeah, I think, um, I think yeah. But what you identified so well then is you leveraged your pre existing relationships and the goodwill that came with that and. Yeah, I think often as species we um, we do. I don't want to generalise, but I think we yeah. have we have good working relationships, you know, on the ground with Definitely. our with our healthcare colleagues. And sometimes I don't know if we leverage that very effectively. <laughs> There's scope, isn't there? But I think that's um, I think that's what I love about qualitative research is that you know we acknowledge. <laughs> And I don't, I don't know that I'll say this well, but, um, you know, we acknowledge that those relationships exist. You know, it's impossible to, to have complete objectivity and to be completely removed from a situation. And, you know, part of this participatory research where you're on the ground and you're wanting to bring about change from being on the ground is being part of the team, using those relationships, understanding their perspective, you know, um, so I think it's so important, particularly in implementation research. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's fascinating, Ros. I know, though, just sort of keeping on with this um, theme around collaborating with nurses, I know that your research, your results, you know, showed a significant percentage of the patients um, on the wards that participated actually had communication difficulties. And I'm just wondering, like, were the nurses surprised by the percentage of patients with communication disability? Was that something? Yeah, it's such a good question. Um, because, yeah, I think it was we had 58% um, of English-speaking patients were identified as having communication difficulty and 64% of total patients admitted to the ward um, were identified as having communication difficulty. So it's a lot. Um, in terms of the nurse's response to that, 
uh, we haven't, as part of this project, had the scope to have that sort of formal um, feedback and reflection with them. So I can't speak to um, uh, their response in that sort of more formal research lens. Um, but I suppose anecdotally it was really interesting um, speaking with the nurses as we did the project and, and as they were identifying patients with communication difficulty. I think yes and no in terms of the nurses realising the impact and, and realising how many people had communication difficulty. I think with patients with severe communication difficulty, the nurses were saying, yes, this is incredibly hard, this is overwhelming, we need help. I think that with more mild communication difficulty, because the screening questionnaire is picking up on not just a diagnosed impairment of communication difficulty, but any functional activity limitation, I think that there were situations where the nurses might have identified that they were only sometimes or never able to communicate with someone in a specific situation, like the patient understanding the implications of their condition um, or the patient understanding, um, you know, what was happening in their day-to-day healthcare. Uh, but they perhaps didn't uh, reflect on that as a communication difficulty, I suppose. I'm putting in quotation marks because we have this idea of, oh, well, they don't have a diagnosed impairment of communication difficulty, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, and I, I was actually reflecting on this earlier today, so I'm probably still forming my my thoughts on it, but I thought it was really interesting to think about um, you know, how our expectations shape what we are seeing. So I think that, you know, as part of the screening questionnaire, patients have communication difficulty if they can't reliably communicate in that situation as identified by nurses. But my own reflection is that perhaps the nurses are so used to dealing with this majority of patients on the ward not being able to communicate in these situations that they're not actually expecting someone to be able to communicate about the implications of their condition because it's actually probably incredibly rare. You know, it, it's not the norm for patients to be able to, com- to communicate about the implications of their condition. So they're not expecting that. So they're not then viewing that as a communication difficulty, um, even though they're saying, yeah, they can't do it. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of my roundabout reflection <laughs> on that point. Um, yeah, that's so yeah, interesting, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I mean, it does make you wonder. We're totally going down a rabbit hole here, but yeah, you know, I do, I do wonder whether you know we get this desensitization, and I think it happens with speeches as well. And then, mm. um, you know, I think it's interesting territory. It's you know because if we start to reduce our expectations and we're not using clear um, methods of assessment like the IFKI, which I'm so keen to hear you um, talk Mm. more about, Mm. then, you know, are we, yeah, how, how blinkered is our, is our approach to assuming competency and, you know, capacity? um, Yeah. And I, yeah, exactly. And I think it's that, that point about, um, you know, which I do love about the IFKI and, and the, um, ICF is considering these environmental factors. And so 
you know, the attitudes of patients and of um, healthcare staff, yeah, are those expectations and attitudes about what people should be able to communicate impacting what people do communicate about. Um, and, again, that's all my own reflection. That's not necessarily, um, you know, what we were finding concretely out of the research. But I think doing this research has um, and looking at the situations that uh, were difficult for patients and nurses to communicate in, so those ones about implications, um, remembering what's happening, um, understanding what's happening day to day, I think if we're, you know, and the supports that supported communication in those situations, you know, the top support was asking follow-up or probing questions. So asking someone, you know, yes, no questions to see if they knew what was happening, you know, later that day or or really delving in and saying, have you had difficulties with this or that or tell me more and promoting that active communication actually meant that people were able to have communication success. So um, I think there's a there's a lot to unpack about the communication environment and the roles um, that people play. Yeah, absolutely. And that opportunity to reveal their capacity and competency, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. such a great point, yeah. All right, well, we'll come back out of that rabbit hole and carry on. So you you can tell us a bit more about the nuts and bolts of your research because you've certainly um, shown us the why and the who. Um, so, yeah, we're so keen to hear more about the how. I know you've presented on this at um, Speech Path Australia, but I guess um, for the benefit of us podcasters, if you could... Um, share some of those um, specifics around your project in particular, your aim and a bit more about the IFKI tool. Absolutely. Yeah, so the the aim of the project was to partner with nurses essentially to understand this process of supporting communication in hospitals and looking more, um, I touched on the World Health Organisation International Classification of Functioning. You know, traditionally as speech pathologists, we uh, work in that diagnosis and treatment of impairment, um, but shifting that focus to the communication activity and participation. So nurse-patient communication is a communication activity. So, um, you know, the nurse getting the patient's attention, um, the patient following instructions, um, uh the patient being able to tell the nurse about any medical concerns, all of those sort of uh, activity, and then participation, so participating in their healthcare. And then we were wanting to examine, we know that personal factors and environmental factors influence um, that activity and participation. For this uh, project, we were specifically looking at communication supports as the environmental factor, so really honing in on that. Um yeah, and I suppose the tools that we used to do this research, so we did it on a subacute hospital on two wards, neurorehabilitation and a general rehabilitation ward, um, and we used the inpatient functional communication interview screening questionnaire um, 
which there is another podcast episode in um, the Speak Up series by Robin O'Halloran speaking more specifically about, about the IFKI. But um, essentially the screening questionnaire is completed by nurses, takes about two minutes, and the nurses review these different communication situations. Uh, there's 14 and they identify when communication has broken down in those situations. So is the patient always able to communicate in that situation? Only sometimes or never. And so then the communication situations are really the backbone of the IFKI and the screening questionnaire. And they're those things I mentioned, like getting the patient's attention or following instructions. And I suppose I really like these because I think communication can be an overwhelming uh, topic to address. And this really helps to compartmentalise hospital communication. And these are the situations um, identified from research that uh are important, that are most common and most important from a provider point of view and from a patient point of view. Um, so then the inpatient functional communication interview, that's completed by speech pathologist, takes about 45 minutes. And that um, is where essentially, so the nurses use the screening questionnaire to identify who has communication difficulty and in what situations is communication breaking down. The speech pathologist can then go in and with that patient identified as having communication difficulty, the speech pathologist has a semi-structured conversation about the person's healthcare and they add communication supports to see if using communication supports means the person can have success in each of those situations. So where they weren't able to communicate effectively previously, can they, if we provide written keywords or if we give them more time, um, or reduce background noise, anything like that. So then it's really identifying those communication supports that help and finding really practical recommendations that then support that patient's activity and participation. So supports them to communicate in those situations with the nurses. It's It was so interesting doing this project as a novice sort of researcher and using the IFKI to do the project it was really interesting speaking with Robin um, and my other supervisors throughout data collection particularly and the paradigm shift of saying, okay, um, you know, this person can have, you know, they might not be able to follow instructions, but if I repeat the question or if I write it down, can they follow instructions? And if they can once I give those supports, they've, they've been successful you know, rather than saying, no, they couldn't do it, they've got an impairment. Um, so that was, it It was fascinating how long it took me to get my head around that shift. Yes. I yeah. think that, that concept of successful communication and how we measure success is a really interesting concept and it is a paradigm shift mm. because I think the way that we're set up to work in healthcare is very much to come in and quantify what the impairment is as our first step. Exactly. Um, certainly activity and participation, you know, are seen as often down the track. Um, mm. But at the same time, we're grappling with this concept of how do we involve this person in decision-making about their healthcare? How do we ensure they're safe? How do we... Uh, you know, look at their and address their well-being and their satisfaction. And you know, we know that that one of the things that is most prevalent in in 
people with communication disabilities feedback post-hospital stays is, is that they were really frustrated and annoyed about not being acknowledged, not being included in decision-making about their healthcare, being immediately overlooked. Mm. Um, so I do think that we've got a way to go there, but mm. I think it's wonderful that with something like the IFKI, you can, if you like, bring a framework to look, you know, quite specifically at that, at that, well, essentially at successful mm. communication, what makes successful communication mm. and how can we adapt to best exactly. promote it in this setting, in yeah. this situation? Um, exactly. And I think it, it, it can be really valuable to help with that prioritisation as well because as you said we do often think um, of impairment first and we think yep we can address activity and participation later in the community Um, and that's just traditionally sort of what we've always done but if we look at the impact of poor activity and participation and the impact on that person's well-being um, and we know that then if that person is participating in their healthcare, that's actually giving them opportunities to practice their communication. So we can still address those impairment goals by that person being more included in their healthcare. Um, so it's not that we're abandoning that input. We're just going about it a different way. And that's then more salient for the person. You know, if we think about neuroplasticity principles, if we're working with, you know, someone's really frustrated because their NDIS plan is happening around them and they don't feel included, that's the most salient thing to them on that day. So if we can help them to participate in that process, they are going to be more motivated to initiate, um, you know, the the vocabulary around those concepts is is going to be more pressing. Um, That supports really patient-centred goal setting. And then... As well, I think um, what's fascinating about, yeah, this paradigm shift is, you know, one man that I assessed for the the IFKI, he, um, you know, had a severe dysarthria associated with um, in the setting of Parkinson's disease and was nonverbal. And this was a longstanding um, chronic issue. He had an iPad. And so from an impairment point of view, he was severe totally nonverbal. From a functional communication limitation, he had no communication limitation because when he had his iPad, which he did, and he would promote the use of it and advocate for it, the nurses knew about it, he could 100% participate in his care. Um, And so it was fascinating to say, okay, well, impairment doesn't equal activity limitation and, and vice versa. Um, And so if we say, okay, well, he's actually really okay in terms of his participation, but this other person, um, for whatever reason, might have a really significant activity limitation, even though their impairment is more mild. So maybe we need to focus our resources and our supports there for a little bit. It's 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 an interesting conversation on prioritisation. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think one to be continued. Absolutely, but I really I yeah. think that's so. I think it's really important in healthcare that we are thinking about that and really segmenting out that impairment from from activity and participation mm-hmm. because yeah, it's a pretty long bow to to look at and and truly address patient-centred goals 
and um, patient involvement in care purely from impairment. As you say, mm. those two examples are really pertinent mm. to that. Uh, we, you've already touched on this a bit, but I know I really wanted um, to make sure that the listeners um, understood a bit more around the communication strategies that you trialled as part of the research. They certainly came across to me as simple and not requiring, you know, significant props or equipment. But can you tell me a bit more about how you determined what strategies you used or introduced? Was that guided by the IFKI or was it, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. So in, in some ways, yes, it was guided by the situations from the IFKI um, and in the scoring of some of the situations, um, you know, where in the instructions it might be that you can ask yes, no questions um, or targeted questions to help to elicit communication on that topic. It was something that... I found really challenging at the start of the project thinking, okay, how can I go into, you know, this one-off interaction with someone and have every possible support that I might need? And I know I fell down the trap of thinking, all right, if I just print every possible communication board and every possible, you know, um, AAC tool and if I bring all the right objects to point two, then we'll, we'll have all of the supports. And I, I kept thinking, all right, I just need to get this combination of the perfect supports to take in. Um, and it was a real learning to say, okay, well, no, the, the whole purpose of this is what are the supports that are readily available? And I, I believe that, um, you know, the research says and, and what we know, clinic, you know, from working clinically is that often we'll provide wonderful communication boards and they'll, they'll sit in a drawer and people won't use them, um, which is so challenging. So going, okay, well, what, uh, I'll go in, I'll, I'll have those things ready, but what's going to work in the moment? And, you know, knowing that that selection of supports was informed by the fact that, um, as a student, I, I attended the Aphasia Institute and I completed parts of the supported um, conversation for adults with aphasia training. Um, and I suppose that was, uh, you know, my personal introduction to providing communication supports and, and using supported conversation was that sort of two months of using that every day. So that definitely, you know, personally informed the supports that came to mind, the, the IFKI itself and the communication situations, and then also having worked clinically since. Um, you know, the supports that had helped. But as you said, they weren't necessarily complex. It was asking follow-up or probing questions, repeating a question, reducing background noise, giving additional time, or asking closed and yes-no questions. And I did offer um, other supports like spoken options, written keywords. Um, we had picture cues, gesture, drawing, all of those other um, supports that that we think about. Uh, I was offering all of those as well, um, but those first ones I mentioned were the most commonly effective in this in this study, um, in this project of these participants. Yeah. And what has the research, what has the research you've done told you about the complexity of using those supports? Yeah, so... That was the fascinating thing. I think the supports themselves aren't necessarily um, new or, or complicated, but, um, you know, and we had some, some stats which I'll run through. So across 15 patient interviews, 
714 supports we used. There were 33 unique categories of support from the data. Um, Two-thirds of the time the support was successful. One-third of the time the support wasn't. So that's 241 times that a support was used and wasn't effective. Um, 473 times that that it was. Um, And more than 80% of patients needed multiple supports. So I think that what we need to remember is that actually providing support, so recognising when communication has broken down, um, thinking of which supports to trial, trialling them when they're ineffective, thinking of other ones to try, um, uh, maintaining a positive attitude throughout, uh, maintaining rapport with the patient throughout. All of those elements are actually incredibly challenging cognitively. And I know that um, Robin speaks about with the IFKI, it takes a few goes to, to to build the the skill to to do it in one interaction because it's actually incredibly challenging from a cognitive point of view to provide those strategies and that's what we're all doing as speech pathologists in our daily work but I think understanding that when we're asking healthcare staff to do that it is a very complex task that we're doing. Incredibly yeah Mm. and I think as you say as you just said you know I think we're we're all on a learning curve you know I don't think Mm. there's ever a point at which you can say I'm you know I'm 100% effective at this because it's so variable it depends on so many factors the person as you say the attitude the rapport Mm. how well you've layered the supports and I think as well, I know that one of the things that came was fed back really clearly from our people with communication disability in, at Austin Health um, when we implemented the training program mm. was um, this concept of being frustrated when communication partners didn't acknowledge communication breakdown. And so that that ability to recognise when it's not going well Mm. and respond in a way that's constructive is an art, I think. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's so um, fascinating that 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 came from those conversations, um, you know, from your your work because absolutely I think that um, there is perhaps this, not within speech pathology but maybe within the ward team that, you know, when the speech pathologist is communicating with the patient, it's never breaking down. It's only with them because they're not doing it right. Um, you know, I, th- I think I saw that in a research study and it's so not the case. Communication breakdown is inevitable. Um, and to be honest, if if you're doing it right, there's usually going to be some communication breakdown because, um, you know, you're trying to help that person to express themselves. So I think understanding that no matter what, communication breakdown is is often going to happen at some stage, but knowing what to do and how to confidently navigate that. As you said, it's an art form and actually um, navigating communication breakdown well is where, you know, the real magic of supporting communication happens. You know, when when you're saying to that person, I'm so sorry that I'm, I'm not getting this right now, but I know it's important to you and we're going to come back to it later and, you know, I'm going to put this sign up to show that to you that we're going to come back to it or, you know, acknowledging that person's competence. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. 
Absolutely. Mm. I feel like we could spend a whole other podcast talking about that. <laughs> I know. We really could. <laughs> we, um, we are running out of time, but yeah. I really, I think we can't finish this conversation without talking about what it means for us species and you've you've actually given us so many practical ideas already but I guess what are one or two key things that we could go out we can go out and should go out and do tomorrow um, in our practice that is um, a great question and I think um, there's a few things uh, I know a, a lot of us would do this already but Asking and valuing the nurse's perspective and opinion on communication um, is a huge one. Engaging them in the conversation, including them in the problem-solving process and asking them what situations are difficult for them and what they want help with because that can really guide goal-setting for activity and participation input. Um, you know, if they're wanting to do a self-medication trial to prove that this person can go home independently and that's the sticking point and the person doesn't understand what a self-medication trial is, that's a really great goal. Um, so, yeah, valuing the nurse's experiential knowledge and, and practical expertise, avoiding shaming them for unsuccessful communication, avoiding shaming ourselves. Supportive communication is, is a tough skill that we're all constantly refining. No one is an expert at it. It's really hard. Um, and then also I think using communication situations to frame assessment and management. I think that, for me, was really eye-opening and really helpful. Communication can feel overwhelming and knowing where to start, particularly when we're shifting our lens to consider activity and participation in hospital. So using those situations and saying, okay, does this person actually understand the implications? And if they don't, maybe that's a therapeutic goal. Maybe we're looking at, you know, we've got some talking mats cards or some picture cards um, you know, can they match a picture of stroke and aphasia to the difficulties that they're having? Um, can they sort of make those connections? That's really salient to that person's discharge um, and to them understanding what's going on. Um, so, yeah, and I think, sorry, there's so many points, but um, bringing the whole team into supported communication. So, as we know, I believe it was Speech Pathology Australia that said communication is everyone's business. Um, you know, it's not the domain of speech pathology only. We are not necessarily the ones that hold the key to be able to say, oh, yep, you know, we've this person with aphasia, no one else can understand, but we can. Um, it's everyone's role to support that person's participation and everyone has valuable input. So it's for the whole team. Um and perhaps, you know, like a stepped model of care, speech pathology can assist with the particularly challenging situations or the, the particularly challenging clients, but it's the entire ward's role and the, the entire team's role to support communication. Also, increasing our confidence as a profession, working in activity and participation. Um, so speak, I think speaking within our speech pathology teams about this and about our comfort and... Uh, and also, you know, saying if we're really under the pump and we feel like we can only do one thing, the impairment-based therapy or supporting the activity and participation, how do we feel about that? Uh, how does the patient feel? How do we navigate those situations? Having those conversations in our speech pathology teams and talking about it more um, 
and increasing our confidence and skills supporting communication, knowing that it's an ongoing journey. I think we often think of supporting communication as this, you know, we learn it once and then tick, that's part of our role as a speech pathologist, but it's really challenging. So attending PD and, and increasing our skill and confidence doing that. Absolutely. And I think I totally agree with you about it being the whole team's responsibility. But I do wonder at sometimes whether, you know, in the hospital environment in particular, we've been as a profession so at pains to have a specialised role that the weight of impairment-based analysis and identification has um, sometimes unbalanced, imbalanced the mm. scale. And, and actually we've almost done ourselves a disservice because it's much harder to extrapolate from that mm. and get to a functional place where you are actually assisting with you know, with setting up those true supports to help people in those really specific healthcare communication situations. So Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I think that it's it's really, you know, I say these things, but in practice it's it's so challenging and I think it does speak to our role in hospitals and, and what we do in hospitals and it's it's really hard. You're so busy. You know, there's, there's, you know, everyone is doing their absolute best and it can be really hard to have conversations about prioritising um, activity and participation and, yeah, how we work in impairment versus that. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think it's a conversation we need to keep having and, you know, hopefully in the future we can, we can talk about more structured models for speech pathology's role in this area. And, and I think using assessments like the IFKI really helps because you, you have a framework. Um, it maybe doesn't feel as nebulous. Um, you know, you've got something to guide that process. Um, and, yeah, looking at do we have policies around communication or when we're, you know, when we're supporting communication, where is the limit of that, where are the boundaries of that, you know, it's just the start of, of having those conversations. I feel like it is and I think there is, um, you know, there's there's renewed vigour in this area. You know, the national standard, healthcare standards are now very clear around the patient having a key role in decision-making and participation in, in decision-making around their own healthcare. There, there are increasingly... Um, clear mandates around health literacy and around access, you know, in the same way that Absolutely. for a decade or more we've had really clear policy around physical access. I think there's now this renewed um, awareness that we need to look at, at, at access from a literacy, um, health literacy point of view as well. Yeah. So I feel like there's momentum building in this space and yeah. and that w that will help to propel us forward. Um, and exactly, then, you know, yeah. I guess the flip side as well is that it's just so compelling the stories that you've shared today with with some of your patient experiences and I'm sure some of the interviews that were formed part of your research, you know, they really are compelling in demonstrating how, what a difference looking at 
communication supports that are very specific to communication situations yeah. in healthcare really is for people's Absolutely. experience. Yeah, I agree. I think the legislation, particularly around guardianship as well um, and capacity, I know that the social worker and the neuropsychologist would often say, unless we have, you know, shown that we've done assessments or we're providing communication supports, um, you know, they they need to be provided to support someone's decision-making. I can't remember the exact wording, but as you said, it's changed in recent years and it's very explicitly outlined that those supports should be provided. Um, and then in terms of, yeah, those, those compelling stories, um, maybe to, to finish up with one, I remember um, one man that I completed a, an IFKI on earlier on and he wasn't on speech pathologies caseload. He hadn't been referred to us, but he was detected through the screening questionnaire, so brought onto the project. And I was aware of this man um, from working on the ward clinically, and the team had said, yeah, we don't understand it. He's got significant cognitive difficulties, but he seems to have been managing at home. And we know that chatting to him, it seems like there's no way this guy could manage at home, but he's been okay. We're going to do a home visit. We think it's going to be all right. We don't really get it, but he's okay. Um, so I had this in the back of my mind. And as I said, speech pathology hadn't been referred to. He had no diagnosed communication impairment. I went in and did an IFKI with him and he was perseverating on, on certain topics. And the moment that I started writing down keywords, he was able to participate in conversation and it actually unlocked all of this competence. And we went back and, you know, from investigation and talking with the family, this man had had a stroke about a year ago that they could date his cognitive decline back to, but it hadn't really been sort of investigated as much. I, I can't remember the circumstances, um, but we actually felt, I think this man has aphasia and it hasn't been diagnosed. It's been missed um, because it's, you know, no fault of anyone in the healthcare system. It, it was just the way that it had presented um, and and that was why he seemed like he was really cognitively impaired, but he was managing because he actually had competence but couldn't express it because of his aphasia and it hadn't been detected. Oh, what a fabulous yeah. story. It was so beautiful. Yeah, incredible. it was beautiful calling his son and saying he's managed to convey to me, you know, his love for his wife, his love for this football team, his love for all of you in the family and this, this and this are most important to him in his life. And his son said how on earth do you know all of that from speaking to him? And it was like <laughs> writing down keywords, unlocked it all. Tick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Roz, it's been such a joy to speak with you about your research. I'm so looking forward to it being published and being able to read more about it. And um, I hope that we get a chance to talk again in the future because I feel like we could easily record a whole nother podcast yeah it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you Ruth thank you so much and I look forward to hearing more about your um, research and your projects in the future as well oh, they sound wonderful absolutely absolutely I feel like this is an area that we would happily talk about for um quite some time <laughs> exactly and I know that there's lots of interesting work going on mm, in this space so absolutely um, I think it'll be yeah it'll be great so thank you so much and um I'm sure that our audience have found it just as entertaining as um as I have and and yeah really compelling and um really thought-provoking too and practical which we love 
So to our audience today, thank you so much for listening. Have a great week ahead and be sure to tune in again next Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.